For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Hello there, and welcome to The Quiet Carriage. We are back to stage three restrictions, unfortunately, here in Castle, Maine. Stage four. In Melbourne, the libraries are closed. Fortunately, Stoneman's Bookroom here in town is still open. I'm not a huge fan usually of shopping online for books, but at a time like this, needs must, and we must do whatever we can to get through this, and there's no real better way than doing that than reading. There's also a little bit going on out there. Um, Melbourne Writers Festival goes live today, and the good thing is that you don't have to be in Melbourne to enjoy it. You can do it right from your home, streaming it online. Just visit mwf.com.au. There's a host of great authors there talking. Also, they launched the uh, Byron Bay Writers Festival this week. There's authors such as Christos Cholkis, Marsha Langton, Sophie Cunningham, James Bradley, and a heap more. And that's going on. They have events all through August. Just visit their website for more information. Here on The Quiet Carriage, it's not all doom and gloom. The show must go on, and on it shall. Later, I'll be reading another excerpt from Thrill Me, the suspense collection out now via Glimmer Press. First up... Let's focus on a new novel, The Viennese Girl, uh, written by Jenny Lacote. And I just want to read you the blurb from the book. From the publisher who discovered the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society comes another beautiful novelization of life on the Jersey Islands during World War II. The Viennese Girl is inspired by the true story of a young Jewish girl, Hedy Berku, who fled to Jersey from Vienna only to find herself trapped on the island during the German occupation. In June 1940, the horror-struck inhabitants of Jersey watch as the Germany, German army unopposed take possession of their island. Now only a short way from the English coast, the Germans plan their invasion. Hedy Baku, a young Jewish girl from Vienna who fled to the isolation and safety of Jersey two years earlier to escape the Nazis, finds herself once more trapped, but this time with no way of escape. Hiding her racial status, Hedy is employed by the German authorities and secretly embarks on small acts of resistance. But most dangerously of all, she falls in love with German Lieutenant Kurt Newman, a relationship on which her life will soon depend. A remarkable novel of finding hope and love when all seems at its darkest. And here's a little bit about the author, Jenny Lacote. Born in Jersey, Channel Islands, Jenny Lacote's parents were raised under German occupation and both families were involved in resistance activity. Lacote moved to England aged 18, where, following a drama degree, she spent a decade on the alternative comedy circuit as a feminist stand-up. She was nominated for a prestigious Perrier Award in 1986. She also wrote for newspapers and women's magazines, Cosmopolitan and Observer, and presented TV and radio shows before focusing on screenwriting, from sitcom Birds of a Feather, Sometimes Never, to sketch shows, The Catherine Tate Show. And The Viennese Girl is her first novel, and I was very lucky to be able to speak to her on the phone about her book now, which is out via Alan and Unwin. Jenny Lacote, thank you so much for coming on The Quiet Carriage, all the way from UK, but, but not the Channel Islands. Is that, is that right? 
That's right. I was born and raised in the Channel Islands, but I've actually lived in England since uh, 1978, and I live on the south coast now, a little seaside town. Right, right. Yeah, the fact that it's from the story set in Jersey was what really stuck out for me when I when I got offered this book, because uh, I have a auntie and uncle who live there and cousins there. Oh. I I think they. I don't know the geography that well, but I think St. Saviour was a place we were as kids. And I think now that's right. my mum said they lived somewhere. I think St. Brellard. Is that how you pronounce uh, it? That's right. You've okay. got very good pronunciation too. Oh, that's good. There's a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand whose families go back to Jersey, actually. And I have, I have family myself oh, really? in Australia yeah. and New Zealand um, because... There was quite a lot of emigration in the late fifties and sixties, up to the up to the seventies, probably yeah. from the island, and, and a lot of people went out there. So yeah, it's it's quite common. Do you know where the islands are? Yes, I do. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there. Oh, being there a lot of times as a, as a kid. Um, right. Such a beautiful place, particularly in summer. Um, it is lovely. Yeah. And of yeah. course, for, for people who don't know, they're actually geographically much closer to France. The, the islands yes. are only about 14 miles off the coast of France and about 80 miles south of the English coast. So there was um, there was a lot of fighting in previous centuries about whether mm. or not they belonged to the British crown or to, or to France. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you went into that because when I do mention Jersey or the Channel Islands here, I do get a bit of blank looks sometimes. It's, it's almost like a bit of a forgotten area of the UK because it's not part of England, is it? It's it's got its own. It's, well, it's it's very complicated. It's mm. um, the Channel Islands are a crown dependency, and that means they are part of the British Isles, mm. but they're not part of the United Kingdom, and they have their own independent governments and right. their own economies. But um, for example, they're not part of the EU mm-hmm. with um, with Britain, but they but they have their own arrangements as a kind of a side issue. So it's really complicated. A lot of people here don't really understand. Yeah, it. right. <laughs> This the story itself is loosely based upon a true story. Now, presumably there are a lot of stories connected to Nazi occupation in Jersey. How did you find out about this particular tale and, and what stood out for you? Well, as you say, there are a lot of stories um, connected to the, uh, the occupation of the Channel Islands um, because they were the only part of Britain that was occupied by the Nazis mm. in World War II. Um, this particular story um, wasn't actually that well known. and It was kind of uncovered in the 1990s and it started appearing in various history books about the Channel Islands. But when it really came to public attention was a few years ago when the woman um, who sheltered mm-hmm. uh, Hedy, um, uh, Dorothea, was given a Vad Vashem Award um, for... Um, basically for for caring for a Jewish person Mm -hmm. uh, during the course of the war and putting her own life at risk. Um, And at that time, the story suddenly got a great deal of attention and I was sent by a a local historian a couple of links to the BBC News and um, there were photographs and interviews and I thought, this is an amazing story. This Mm -hmm. is something that uh, really is a very little-known story so far about the island. And... um, and I and I I just thought it was it, it really encapsulated the whole issue of the confusion and the the, the different the different sides of, of the story because the the occupation of the Channel Islands is, is not a it's not a simple story. There's a, a number of narratives that have tried to make it that, but um, actually it was it was a complicated period as every occupied territory was, mm. and uh, the survival. Um, of the uh, of, of this very vulnerable Jewish girl in such a in such a dangerous place was um, was fascinating to me. Mm, yeah, how much research was involved for you here? Well, there there was quite a lot of the the facts of the of the main story on which it's based mm-hmm. were known and documented, and they were that was fairly easy to get hold of. The issue is that um, very little was known beyond those basic facts. Um, for example, how all those characters in the story, who are real people, the main the main people involved in the story, are all real. But we don't know how any of them met. We don't know how they got to know each other right. or how any of those relationships developed. Mm-hmm. So 
the skeleton of the story, the foundations, if you like, um, are based on what we know to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, But clearly there was a lot of room there for fictionalisation because nobody alive really knows exactly what happened in in that five-year period. Mm, Yeah. Your, Your background is in screenwriting, and the way you write is very visual. Did you ever think of writing this as a screenplay? screenplay about um, Occupied Jersey. Um, it was a film that I wrote called Another Mother's Son, which came out right. in 2017. And that was about the uh, the story of my family during the occupation, right. um, which, is, which is a very tragic one. My, my great aunt and some of her family, this is on my mother's side of the mm-hmm. family, um, sheltered a Russian slave worker. Oh, and right. sadly, um, they were betrayed. And uh, two of them went to the concentration camps as a result, and my great-aunt Louisa uh, died in Ravensbrück. So this is a story that I wanted to get into the, into the public arena. So I wrote a screenplay for that, in uh, which came out, as I say, in 2017. Yeah. And I didn't want to do another very similar story in an identical, well, it's not a similar story, but a similar um, background uh, in the same format. So I thought if I chose a different format... Um, it, it might be, and also, I also wanted yeah. to um, experience writing a novel, which I hadn't really yeah. attempted before. Yeah. How, how did you find that transition? Did you find it a, a struggle, or was it was it a joy? <laughs> um, more of a struggle than a joy, to be honest. I mean, obviously, there are, there are aspects of it which are fantastic. You get to make a lot more decisions yourself than you would if you were writing for film and television, because it's nowhere near as collaborative. Um, so you get a lot more control over what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it's um, it's such a long, unwieldy process compared to screen. And what I discovered as well is that when you're writing for screen, so many aspects of your job are done by other people. Mm-hmm. So you can give work to the actors to do. Or if you're writing yeah. a scene, for example, about somebody coming in and preparing a meal, then... Um, you can leave a lot of how that happens, what kind of stove it was, and you know how they heated the water. All that kind of thing can be left to the director and the art director. Yeah. In a novel, you have to look at all that stuff yourself and, and describe it and find out what they would have used. So in some ways, there's, there's more research about the, about the, the, the detail than there is in, in a screenplay. Yeah, right, right. Um, you're a funny person. You're a stand-up comedian. <laughs> You've got a host I was, of. <laughs> I was a long time ago. Yeah. You've got a host of enviable TV comedy credits as well. Um, this story is not funny. <laughs> How do you go from? Oh, it's really not funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's about well, it's about one of the the darkest, probably the darkest period in human history. How do you go from writing comedy to to writing something like this? Well, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I. When I left stand-up comedy in the early 90s, my intention at that point was to become a comedy writer, which seemed a fairly natural progression. Mm -hmm. And actually, for a number of years, that's what I did. Um, I, first of all, went into sitcom writing. um, And I also did, I worked on the Catherine Tate show, which was a sketch show, um, which which was comedy. Mm, So that seemed to be the direction I was going to go in. But... You know how careers go. Sometimes the opportunity comes up to work on something else. Um, and perhaps you know, there were times when I was offered drama work when there was no comedy work available. And I discovered that I really enjoyed drama because mm-hmm. it, once you started on sitcoms, you started to understand the narrative process a little bit more. So it's taking you into a different area. Mm-hmm. of creativity writing from the one I'd been used to and uh, I started off doing soap operas and then one hour television dramas and then it was a fairly natural progression to go into sort of standalones and to 90 minute scripts um, as I say the, the the shift then into into novel writing was again a big step and I really just wanted to see if I could achieve it but it's I guess it's the challenge you just you, you get um, once you've had some degree of success with what you're doing i'm just the kind of person who says okay well we've done that let's have a go at something else
was Venetian Blinds with their track Silent Killer. And now we'll return to my interview with author Jenny Lacote about her novel, The Viennese Girl. I could I could definitely see this book on the screen and presumably you have a few contacts. Has there been any interest from production companies? <laughs> Everyone has asked me that. Um, <laughs> I, there hasn't so far. Um, and um, we're just going to have to see what happens. I mean, yeah. I, I never try to anticipate that sort of eventuality because one thing I know about this business is nothing ever turns out the way you expect. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see if, if someone is interested, then I'm sure they will, um, I'm sure they will follow that up. Yeah. Would you insist on writing the screenplay? I don't know. It would, okay. again, it just depends on, it depends on so many different factors. So at the moment I'm just focusing on the book and hoping that the book does okay. Cause of course it came out in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, which is um, it was it was time to come out for the seventy fifth um, um, anniversary of Liberation Day for the Channel Islands and for right. PE Day yeah. in um, in Europe, mm-hmm. and we thought we were being very clever by um, <laughs> <laughs> by by choosing that date, and of course it turned out to be the worst time to publish a book in the history of publishing. I know. So I'm just focusing on you know hopefully getting getting the book out and people reading the story and be interested in the story. Yeah, how hard has that been for you? Have you seen many events cancelled? Oh yeah, I mean it was very disappointing. There was a whole bunch of events that we were going to have in May. Mm. Um, I was going to. Uh, there were going to be events um, where I live down, down here on the south coast and in London, and I was also going to go over to Jersey for the Liberation Day right. events and be part of that. And we were going to do book signings and events and. You know, everything, of course, um, in March, early April was just, everything was pulled. And yeah. um, it, we, we did a little online um, online pub- publicity event, which, which was great, and, and those things are fun. My, my feeling about this, it, it was disappointing, but when you think of the price that is being paid by some people during yeah. that, during this pandemic and the struggles that so many people are going through not to be able to go to a book launch is not really the biggest problem you can have so i'm trying to keep that heavily in perspective it's true it's true yeah despite all that the book has been a huge success already i mean it got picked up by an esteemed publisher sold to america for a six-figure sum as well how confident were you that, that this would happen astonished yeah right. i mean paul what you've got to understand is that i that the only time i tried to write a novel previously was 20 years ago yeah um and nobody was interested i couldn't even get an agent to represent it wow. everyone looked at it and went no it's not it's not for us so i just assumed that i was unable to do this and 20 years later having a bit of a stubborn streak i thought right i'm going to have one more go this is a fantastic story and i should yeah. be able to make something of this and of course i was 20 years more experienced by then um so i had a go fully expecting that it probably wouldn't get published um being convinced that if it did I'd be very lucky if a little independent publisher picked it up yeah. and six people in Jersey read it. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that it was the fact that it was picked up and, and there was actually a, a bidding war in, in the States for the rights to it was absolutely I was I was absolutely blown out of the water by that. It was just yeah. extraordinary. And um, yeah, I mean it's it's no writer with any no writer with any experience or information about the business goes into it assuming that you're going to be successful or you're going to make money. Most mm-hmm. writers barely even make a living yep. from what they do, um, mm-hmm. no matter what the quality of the work. Um, so to have that sort of success on the first book was absolutely staggering for me. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you have more books in you? Well, um, I guess the market will decide that. I'm actually <laughs> writing one at the moment, um, which is another story about Jersey, but set just after the occupation, which is another historical period that I think not that much know, is, is known about. Um, it's, the, it's one of the, the weird things that, you know, the Channel Islands are part of the, part of the British Isles, and a, a number of people know that they were occupied, but so little, even here, is, is known about what that occupation was like. Right. And even less is known about the... Um, 
the aftermath and the and the effect that it had on generations afterwards, including my own, because I was born 15 years after the end of the occupation. Yeah. And until I was probably in my 20s, I didn't really start to piece together the effect that that had had on my parents, who were children during the occupation, my grandparents, who had to raise their kids under those horrendous circumstances, the fear that would have existed in in the homes of, of everybody. And... Um, yeah, it was it was something that I I thought it's it's something that I I really would like to explore further. So so that's what the next one's going to be about. That's great. Yeah, are you? You said before you're you're not writing for TV anymore. Is that something you'll return to? Well, I would say never say never. Um, mm-hmm. Television is a very fast moving industry. Um, obviously, television has changed a lot in the last few years really um, I suppose since I drifted away from television and became more interested in film and books television in that period has changed a great deal Um, it's still it's still very difficult it's very competitive there's a lot of very powerful people Um, it it can be quite difficult to be a television writer Um, but of course television now has a greater reach and probably Mm. a greater creativity than it's had in a long time Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah I'd never say never but at the moment I'm really enjoying the sort of the 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 new experience and the the freedom of of Mm. writing books so I'm going to stay in that for a little while and um, yeah yeah, I'm I'm knocking on a bit now so I don't know uh, (laughs) how how many more years I'll be sitting in front of my Mac I don't know about that yeah. Has your process changed much, like going from books to, sorry, from TV to books, or are the, the principles, do they remain pretty much the same? Well, actually, I found my experience of sort of 25 plus years working in screen was mm. the most useful background for knowing how to tackle a book. Right. There were certain aspects of it, that, as I really touched on some of them, that were were very, very different, including the idea that you have to go into a character's head and explain their thought process. Yep. As a screenwriter, you give a couple of stage directions and you give that work to the actor to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of and, and description as well of, um, of places, because if, you, if you're writing about a, a location or something that happens within a location on screen, you let the director... Um, describe and show you that place mm-hmm. and so it was it was difficult to know how far to go with that or how much information to give without you know going over the top with it so there was quite a, a lot of things I had to learn and I did see um I, I did pay a tutor to help me with the sort of the, some of the early drafting just right. to get a sense of style mm-hmm. but in terms of sort of plotting and putting a, a story together I would say that the um, that the screenwriting was really useful for that because you know that you need things like inciting incidents, you, that you need turning points, you need halfway points, you need act crises and resolutions. Mm-hmm. And if you you can apply that just as much to a book as, as you can to a film. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, I think that's a real help actually having that sort of information already in your head is, is quite useful when you sit down in front of a blank screen because. 90,000 words ahead of you is a really scary mm. mountain to climb. And, um, and anything that you can bring to that, which, which gives you a, a structure, I think is, is useful. That's true, yeah. I guess story is story, no matter what form it's in. So it's great that you have that background. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think, that, of course, there are many other writers who, who work in a very different way. Yeah. Um, many other novelists who, who have a, a very different approach and who probably are not as story-based as I am. Yeah. Um, but having come from screen, I'm fairly steeped in the idea of story. And also, it's the kind of books that I like to read. Um, I'm, uh, novels that sort of, you know, what was the, uh, there was a comedy phrase the other day where, you know, somebody goes on a picnic and then it rains. Um, <laughs> and not really my sort of, um, are not really my, my kind of novels. I, I do like, I do like a story, not necessarily a thriller or a page turner. It doesn't have to be that, but I do like a strong narrative through a story. Mm-hmm. And I think when you start writing as a new novelist, you tend to write the kind of book that hopefully that you want to read. Yep. Yep. 
It's a place that you're clearly very passionate about. What's your relationship like with Jersey now? Like, how, how often do you get back there? Well, at the moment, not at all, yeah. because um, travel's been very restricted here. Mm. Um, I would say that for, for, for many years, I, I didn't go back that often. I was building a career in, um, in London, where I lived for, for 30 years, and, um, and, and focused on that. But in recent years, in the last sort of eight to ten years, um, since I started researching the film, I mm -hmm. suppose, um, I've been back there a lot more often. Um, I still have family there. My father still lives there. And right. I have um, uh, an aunt and uncle and cousins who live there. And I think sometimes when you move away from a place as a young person, as you get older, you you sort of rediscover it and you you find an affection for it that you forgot. And so it's, it's great to go over there now and I'm sort of building up um, a social life. I'm reconnecting with friends that I haven't seen for years. Mm -hmm. um, there's some friends of mine who are now running a little independent film festival there and I'm involved yeah, with that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, it's actually really nice to go back and, and remember all the things that you loved about it as mm -hmm. a kid. It's, it's actually... So I, I feel more connected to it now than I have for a while. Yeah, yeah. I have to ask you about the titles as well. So it's in bookstores here as The Viennese Girl and it's on Audible here as Hedy's War. So I'm just wondering, because that's something I actually haven't come across before. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Uh, well, um, it was uh, called Hedy's War in this country. Um, mm -hmm. There were various titles suggested, and that was the that was the title the publishers wanted to go for. Mm -hmm. And um, and then when we sold to Alan and Unwin yes. in Australia, they said they would like to change the title wow. to the Viennese Girl. Okay. And um, I, and I think that's something to do with their own marketing. Yeah. I think in I think in many countries it's going out as the Viennese Girl, and in the states it's going out under a different title altogether. Oh really? So. Wow. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think it's very much to do with indiv uh, individual publishers knowing their own market and their own marketplace yeah. and uh, realising that certain, certain titles may have, um, I don't know, that certain titles may have connotations of other books that they don't mm. want to be associated with because it's the wrong genre or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. They have their own idea of what they think will work and, and I'm perfectly happy to be advised by that because yeah. it's a fairly new area to me. Yeah, yeah. No, me too. <laughs> Best of luck with the book. It's um, it's called the the Viennese Girl in Australia in bookshops. But if you go on Audible, it is Hedy's War. Thank you so much for giving up your time today to come on the the quiet carriage, Jenny, and uh, enjoy your summer over there. Your European summer. It's still very oh, much winter very here. Much. <laughs> yeah, we're we're trying to enjoy it as much as we can given the um, given the restrictions. <laughs> it's a very odd year everywhere, isn't it? We're all united there. Really, really yeah. strange year. Yeah. yeah. But um, well done with the success you've had with your book, given the conditions it's been released under. Could you leave us with a song selection before you go? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a song um, which is a real favourite of mine from a long time ago, um, which has a great melody um but also has quite a lot of politics in it which mm -hmm. is something which uh which i which i follow quite closely and it's the b52's deadbeat club great choice jenny lacote thank you so much thanks paul what for i'm trying to think
no agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. Theatre Royal has hit pause on their planned film screenings until further notice, but tasty pizzas are still available for pickup and home delivery from Wednesday through to Sunday, 4 till 8 p.m. Phone 54721196 to order. And the Takeaway Cafe continues to serve great coffee and delicious pastries Saturday and Sunday, 9 till 12. The Theatre Royal, Main FM sponsor. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM. The team at Glimmer Press have been very kind to allow us on the first Friday of the month to read a chapter, one of the short stories from their recent collection titled Thrill Me. It's a collection of suspenseful stories. Today I'm going to read for you the short story by Stephen Orr. This is Mrs. Meaners Has Gone to Get Chalk. And a warning, listeners, that there is some minor bad language in this story. Mrs. Mina's class is all seven and eight-year-olds. Enrolments are down, three classes have become two, and even then, she only has 14 students. This morning, the class is even smaller. The Baker twins are off with a flute lesson. Two boys, the troublemakers, Smith and Wesson, are at a sports carnival in Philadelphia, and Blake Clare has the flu. The remaining nine students are sitting at their tables, working, while Mrs. Meaners pops down to the office for supplies. She knows she can trust them, apart from S&W. They're good kids. Max Rewald is busy with a diorama. The Battle of Waterloo is slowly taking shape on his desk. The red soldiers, the blue soldiers, and little guns he's made from matchsticks. There are plenty of bodies sitting around in the grass on the hillsides. He wants to make it realistic. He's painted it. Nicely, with red and brown. He says to his friend Tim, It's late for recess. Tim says, No, it's not. There was no bell. Yes, there was. Tim's hungry. Seems like they've been alone for hours. He's busy with his composition. He's writing about the time they went to Walt Disney World and he got sick on the first ride and had to spend most of the day sitting in the cafeteria, clutching his guts and chucking up. My sisters keep returning to see if I was any better, but when I wasn't, they just keep going away. He's being very careful. He wants to please Mrs. Meaners. She's told him he has a very neat hand, beautiful, flowing cursive, and he should keep practicing. So he continues, clutching the pencil, too hard, biting his lip. Then he looks up and says, Was that the bell? No, it's Mr. Reed's walkie-talkie. What's he doing here? He only does the garden on Tuesdays or Mondays. He's the super. One desk over, a girl named Kate is colouring an elephant. There's paint all over it, and she smooths it, but it smudges, and she shakes her head and says, I'm going to start again. She screws it up, puts it in the bin, and gets another blank from Mrs. Mina's desk. Then she sits, selects a green pencil, and starts on the hills. Her friend, Robin, who's more interested in math, works through her speed and accuracy booklet. Again, the same paint, but she doesn't care, because she wants to solve the problems. This isn't important to her. If a sum is left unfinished, then there's something wrong with the balance, the feel, the geometry of the world. She says to Kate, Why are you doing it again? She says she's going to mark it. Colouring in? She's n- she never marks colouring in. 
Anyone there? A voice from the hallway. Robin says, Mark's brother. He better not come in, not during second period. He'll get in so much shit. You can't say that. Shit. Tim and Max try it out. A small chorus of SHIT. And then Tim tries bugger, but makes sure Mrs. Minas doesn't suddenly come in. That would take some explaining when he gets home tonight. Another boy, Sidney, sits in the corner reading a book about a girl who finds a magical frog. He says, this is crap, and searches the level 6 reader box for another. Kate says, you should try Stephen King, not allowed. I saw this film about a kid and his mum and the dad goes nuts. Sidney doesn't care, he just looks at his scabby arm and the blood and says, do you think I should see a nurse? Another boy, Harry, is half asleep, his head in the desk. Kate tells him he should wake up and finish his math because Mrs. Minas will be back soon, and if he's wasted time, she won't be happy. A light flashing in the hallway. Robin says, Do you think he's coming back? Max says, No, not now. He's done. He'll have to find some more kids. Do you think he'll go to Mrs. Thomas's class? My sister's there. He might. Maybe I should go tell her. You can't. Yeah. As she deflates, I forgot. I can't believe how quickly it happened, Harry says, finding his spelling book and opening it. Everybody's going to know about us, Tim says. It's not like it's unusual, Max adds. No, although my mum's going to be really pissed off. Then Max checks his watch and says, she should be back by now, shouldn't she? Tim agrees. He's hungry, and although the clock has fallen from the wall and lies in pieces on the floor, he guesses it's past time for the bell. It didn't ring. Should I check? Maury, another quiet boy, says. She'll give you detention if she finds out. He doesn't care. He takes out his phone and checks the time. Yeah, see, holding it up. The bell should have gone 20 minutes ago. They all sit, thinking about what to do. No one says anything. Just the nine voices, lost in their own arithmetic, unable to find the correct answer. Max says, maybe he didn't mean it. Tim asks him what. What didn't they mean? Max just says... I was first. I was second, Kate adds. What's it matter who was first, Maury says. They hear footsteps, and Kate says, He's coming back. And Maury says, It doesn't matter anymore. And Kate starts crying. The footsteps get louder, and they clutch the edge of the desks, stand, move into corners. But this time, it's a policeman, wearing a bulletproof jacket, carrying the same sort of rifle as him. The officer says, If you see Kate. Takes a deep breath, then drops his head, looks away. Mrs. Maynard has gone to get chalk, Max says to him. He doesn't reply. He just then clicks a walkie-talkie from his belt, one like Mr. Reed's, and says, There are more in here. A voice comes back. How many? He counts. Nine. Then half collapses against the door jamb, lets his head drop again like a broken doll, and slides down, so he's squatting. What's wrong with him? Max asks the others. He's upset about something, Kate says, standing, trying to decide what to do next. And that was the short story. Mrs. Minas has gone to get chalk by Stephen Orr. And that appears in the suspenseful collection of short stories titled Thrill Me, edited by Lynette Washington and available now via Glimmer Press. Uh, it'll be available to, to buy and to order at all good bookshops. She wore blue the night softer than satin was the light from the stars she wore blue Warmer than May, her tender sighs Love was ours Ours, love I held tightly Feeling the rapture grow 
she left Gone was the glow of blue velvet But in my heart they'll always be Precious and warm a memory Through the years And I still can see Blue velvet through my tears She wore blue velvet But in my heart there'll always be Precious and warm a memory through the years, and I still can see blue velvet through my You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM. And there we heard Bobby Vinton with Blue Velvet. And that is unfortunately all we have time for today. A big thank you to the team at Glimmer Press for allowing me to read Stephen Orr's short story. And also our guest today, Jenny Lacote, speaking to us about her novel, The Viennese Girl, out now via Alan and Unwin. Next week on the show, it's time for the TQC Book Club, and I'll be chatting with a person who a lot of people around town know, Tim Heath, who runs the Theatre Royal. We'll be chatting about one of his favourite books. And also, I'll be playing another performance from the Wheeler Centre. I'm on Fridays from 1pm. You can contact me through all the socials, and all episodes are available to listen back to on Spotify. I'm going to leave you now with Ike Quebec with his song Blue and Sentimental. Until next time, keep well, keep safe, and keep reading.